Anybody on Facebook? <laughs> Listen, man, it's not a dirty secret. Like 90-some percent of the world's on Facebook now. Um, uh, there was, I don't know if this is still true or not, um, because I, I don't get on Facebook very often. Um, most of the time I'm reading Leviticus, okay? Um, and if I get crazy, Deuteronomy, all right? But um, uh, on Facebook, there, there used to be this, um, like, on your about section, like kind of who you are, there, there, there used to be this thing and it would, it said relationship. Like if you were in a relationship, right. And, uh, and I remember seeing on some of my friends pages, the, the statement on relationship, it would say it's complicated, right? Like, do y'all remember that? It's, it's complicated, which means like you're in something, right? You've got something going on, some kind of relationship, but, but it's complicated. It's not easy. There, there's something, you know, weird or off or odd or strange or whatever. It is complicated. Um, you know, I think sometimes um, that's the way we feel about our relationship with the Lord. Like, like if, if someone were to sit down with you and you were to be honest about where you're at in your relationship with the Lord, your answer might be, well, it's complicated, right? Like, like some days uh, it's good. Some days it's, I don't know. Um, some days I think I'm doing awesome. I'm being a great follower of Jesus. And then other days I'm not so good. Um, it, it's, it's very complex, right? Um, and, and maybe if we are asked to lead someone to the Lord, right, to, to, to talk to them about salvation or whatever, we might kind of get lost up in our words. And, um, you know, I think, honestly, we've done a really good job as a, as a, a group of people that, that follow Jesus. We've done an awfully good job at overcomplexifying something that was originally intended to be very simple. Now hear me, okay? Your relationship with the Lord might be complicated to you, but his relationship to you is not complicated. The Lord's relationship to you is not complicated. In fact, it's very simple. He made it very simple. And so what I wanna, I just wanna unpack a couple verses this morning, this afternoon, and I just want, to, I want you to kind of let that be in the back of, of your mind. This thing's not intended to be complicated. It's not intended to be complex. It's supposed to be natural, free-flowing, easy. Jesus said in the Gospels, come to me if you're heavy burden. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Our relationship with the Lord is supposed to not be complicated because his relationship to you is not complicated. And so I just want to unpack that this morning. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to um, Romans chapter 5. While you're getting there, Paul wrote to the churches in Rome and the surrounding areas. He wrote to, uh, this, this letter was addressed to Jews and Gentiles. There were Jews and Gentiles, people that followed Judaism, that converted to Christianity, and people that were pagans and heathens and all sorts of other religions uh, under the Gentile banner, and they all uh, became followers of Jesus. And so Paul is writing this letter. It's very doctrinal. Um, it's, uh, it's very theological. 
Bible, um, which is the study of God, right? And, uh, and so he's just kind of unpacking the, the, the gospel message. And, and I, I want to unpack this just in, just in a couple verses, all right, about, about how uncomplicated our relationship with the Lord can be, all right? So in Romans chapter five, let's look at verse 17. We're kind of jumping in midstream. It says this, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. All right, let's, let's just unpack, uh, leave that, that verse up there. Let's unpack just that first section for, for just a second. Um, put that one back up there. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, okay? So what, what Paul is writing about to the Christians is he's talking about the Adam and Eve account in Genesis, okay? When Adam and Eve uh, royally screwed up, right? And, uh, and they, they eat of the fruit. You guys know the story if you've read in Genesis chapter three. Um, they eat of the fruit and they, they miss the mark, right? God says, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis chapter three, they do anyway, the enemy tricks them into uh, eating of this fruit and, uh, and they trespass, right? What that means, it says, um, if because of one man's trespass, that means Adam used to be walking with God. To trespass means that you have fallen away when you used to be close. So, so Adam trespassed, he fell away from an intimate, close relationship with God and the result was death reigns. Okay, so death obviously means the absence of life, right? You're not alive anymore. So, so when, when Adam and Eve chose the knowledge of good and evil, they were given death. They were also given the knowledge of good and evil, which, did, by the way, did you know that the ability to judge the difference between good and evil is actually a consequence of sin? That, like, that's not a good thing that you know the difference between good and evil. We were not originally intended to know anything about evil. We were originally intended to know good. And so part of the consequence of our sin is that we've been given the ability to judge. And guess what? I don't know about you, but I'm a terrible judge. I'm not a good judge of other people. I'm not a good judge of character. I'm not a good judge of myself. So it says, through one man's trespass, through Adam's, though he was intimate with God and he walked with him, he fell away and now death reigns. He was given a death certificate. He had to die. And death became the thing that reigned over the earth. We're all gonna die, right? We all, if you fast forward, if you don't believe me, you can look in Genesis chapter five, verse three, and it says, Adam had other sons and daughters in his image and in his likeness. So Adam's inerrant sin that was in him got passed on from generation to generation. And so now now we inherit this sin nature. If you have children, you know what I'm talking about. You don't have to teach them to be crazy savages. They just are. So death reigns. Death has dominion. Death has rule through Adam's sin. And now you do too. You're born a dirty little savage, (laughs) right? Through one man's trespass, Adam and Eve 
chose the knowledge of good and evil over life with God. And now we get to bear the same burden. So it goes on in this passage. In in verse 17, it says, listen to this, much more, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through Jesus Christ. What I want to talk about today is how do we reign in life? We're not designed for death. We have inherited death, but we're not designed for it. In Genesis 1, and 27, it says we're created in the image of God. We bear his image and his likeness. Even though we have sin's image on us, we're actually designed for life. That's what God wants for us. And so not, not just, just life like get through life, but, but actually to reign in life. This passage says, I mean, just look at that, those, one, those two words, much more. We were destined for death. The trespass of Adam has carried on from generation to generation. Death reigns in our life, but much more. We have been offered much more. It means that there's more to the story. I love how the message puts it. Put, that, put the, uh, the message passage part up on the screen. In the message version, it says, listen to this. If death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing, can you imagine the breathtaking recovery life makes? Sovereign life in those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant life gift, this grand setting everything right that the one man Jesus Christ provides. So how do we reign in life? You see, I'm not interested in trying to figure out how do we get through life. How do we exist through life? How do we just make it to the finish line? That's not what God puts you on this earth for. Newsflash. You're not supposed to just grin and bear it and white knuckle yourself through this thing and just hopefully maybe one day get through the pearly gates, right? That's not what we're on this earth for. Paul tells us, like he told the Romans, the Roman church, that we are designed to reign in life. That means we are designed to have dominion over our life. We are to rule over our life, not let our life rule us. I think sometimes we we get stuck in the trap of letting life rule you. Maybe you feel like you're on a roller coaster right now and you're just on the ride, right? And you're just getting knocked left and right and you don't know what's up and down and whatever. We are called to reign in life. So how do we do that? I'm not interested in existing. I'm, I'm, in, I'm interested in reigning. I'm interested in having dominion over this life. So it starts out, let's look at this passage again. It says, those who receive the abundance of grace, the abundance of of grace. If you want to reign in life, if you want to have dominion over your life, you have to receive abundant grace. Abundant grace. Okay, grace, get this, means that God himself 
is favorably leaned in to your situation. He is inclined into whatever you've got going on whether it's your, your job situation or a, a struggling marriage or an addiction, or maybe your life is going great right now. Maybe you're the highest paid, the best uh, employee, you're doing all the, all, everything right, like everything is going great in your life. It doesn't matter whether you're in the pit or on the mountaintop. God is leaned in to your situation. He is offering grace to you and not just grace to get through. He is offering abundant grace. Abundant grace. The word abundant means more than enough. So here's the picture, okay? Because if he just gives us enough grace to get through, then what that means is that you get full and then that's all. And if all you're doing is operating because you're full, that means you have nothing to give. Fullness can only be measured by overflow. And so if you want to give grace away, if you want to be a gracious person, if you want to learn how to reign in life, then you have to overflow grace. That's why it says that he gives it abundantly, abundantly. So here's the picture, right? Abundant grace means there's more than enough to go around. Picture with me um, that we're, we're all sitting, standing in a pool, okay? And uh, I take a container, a plastic container uh, or a bottle or something like that. If, if you take that plastic container that's closed and you put it in the water, Nothing happens, right? Other than if I let it go, it'll pop up. No, like water doesn't go in the container, right? But if I take a knife and I puncture the bottle and I sink it in the water, what happens? The water comes in, right? So this is yes, this is no. Right on. Put the container in, water rushes in. Now, there's plenty of water around, right? That one container didn't fill the whole pool up and now we're all standing dry in the pool. No, 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 there's water all around. That's what abundant grace is. The word um, abundant, the root word abundant literally means to pierce something, to be pierced. So what you are saying when you say, God, I want abundant grace, I don't want you to be just favorably leaned into me just to get through this situation. I want your entire self. I want as much as you will give me to be leaned in to my situation, to my life, my marriage, my work, my friends, fill in the blank. When you do that, you say, hey, God, pierce me. Pierce me. That's why scripture talks about that we have to die to ourselves. Literally, the picture is the message, the gospel message of Jesus Christ being pierced into you. And you know what that is? Grace. It's his abundant grace filling you up to the point that it just is and it overflows and it comes out. And when people see you, they see a gracious person. They see someone that's leaned in. Um, Also the word grace, get this, you cannot get grace or give grace from a place of work. You cannot strive into grace. You cannot strive and receive grace. If you are working, like you might be saying, man, I'm, I'm praying uh, 10 times a day and I'm reading my Bible morning, noon, and night and I'm, I'm trying to do all the right things and it just doesn't seem like I can get ahead, right? I just can't get ahead, you're striving. 
This isn't, a, this isn't an equation. It's not A plus B equals C. That was Old Testament. Old Testament, God says, you do this, you obey this law. If you keep your end of the deal, then I will give you grace. I will give you abundance. I will give you mercy. Jesus took care of that when he died on the cross because we couldn't keep the rules. So when Jesus died on the cross, now all bets are off. The law is fulfilled. And God says, now you can have grace if you just receive it. You don't have to do anything. So if you're trying to be a gracious person, chances are you're not gonna do very well at it. If you're trying to receive the grace of God by doing something to get it, chances are you're not gonna see grace in your life. Your eyes will be covered to the point that you don't see God's favor. Grace has to come from a place of rest. If you are not resting in your current situation, then whatever it is that you're doing is a dead work. It goes on to say that we are to receive abundant grace, right? Abundant grace. And we are to, um, to receive a free gift of righteousness. Righteousness, man, what a church word, right? I don't ever use the word righteous until I stand up on this stage or I teach a Bible study. (laughs) Righteousness. You know what that means? It means that you and me are in right standing with God. It means that when God looks at you, he sees perfection, completion, purity, wholeness. Why? Not because you're that good but because Jesus gave you his righteousness in your place. That's the reason why I think um, Jesus talked about having faith like a child. Because see, that doesn't make sense in my brain. I go, dude, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, right? I've, I've screwed up yesterday and the day before, and I'm, I'm probably gonna screw up somewhere down the road. I get angry sometimes. I don't treat my wife very well sometimes. Sometimes I don't treat my coworkers well. Sometimes I do things that I, I mean, I, sometimes I willingly sin. Sometimes I, I just miss the mark. So if I think about my righteousness, what I'm doing, how I'm operating with the Lord, then every time I'm gonna fall short. But that's what God's calling us to do is to exchange my right standing, which is not right standing at all because I'm terrible, it's exchanging my right standing with Jesus' right standing. Now, Jesus was perfect, right? The reason why I think scripture says that we have to have faith like a child is here's the picture, okay? I have, I have two little kids, right? I have, um, I have an eight-year-old and she is thin, right? Um, she is a, she's a skinny little rail, love her to death, um, eats like a horse, but crazy metabolism. And then I have a, um, a four-year-old uh, son and he's, he's, he's little too. And, and here's the picture, okay? When my son runs up to me, when my daughter runs up to me, when they hug me, okay, I can literally take them and cover them completely. So if I were to hug one of my kids and I stood back like this, I could literally embrace them and you would see nothing but me. That's why I think we have to realize how small we are That's what having faith like a child is, realizing that your righteousness is dirty, filthy rags, like Isaiah says. We've got to literally realize how little we are and that we bring nothing to the table. 
and just receive this grace hug. Receive through grace the righteousness of Jesus. So when when we get the righteousness of Jesus, that means when God looks at us, all he sees is the Jesus embrace. He sees Jesus' sacrifice. He sees Jesus' perfection. He sees Jesus' holiness. He doesn't see what you did 10 years ago. He doesn't see what you did last week. He doesn't see what you're gonna do a year from now. He sees the person in the perfection of Jesus Christ. We have been given a free gift. Catch this, it says the gift is free. Free. Because see, if we had to work for it, then that means that we're owed it. If I go and work at a job and I do a certain thing, then I should get paid for that, right? In this scenario, Paul is saying, no, no, no. You receive a free gift. No strings attached. God is leaned into you saying, here you go. You can have it. You can have grace abundantly. You can have the free gift of Jesus's righteousness in your place. When I look at you, I will see perfection, but you have to receive it. The emphasis is in the way that that gift is given. It's that the desire comes from the giver. It's that this free gift cost the giver something. In fact, it cost God his very own son for us. So how do we get this? It says that we simply receive it. If we want to reign in life, we have to receive the free gift of righteousness. We have to receive an abundant grace. Here's the imagery. Um, Josh, you got an unopened bottle of water? I don't want your backwash. Now, Josh, give me that water. I would like a drink of it. Give me the water, Josh. Right now, give me the water. Josh, give me the water. I said, give me the water. I said, give me the water, Josh. Listen, the emphasis of abundant grace and complete and total righteousness is on the giver giving the gift but we have to receive it. You see, I think this is where we get stuck. We go, God, I need a drink of water. God, I really need some water. God, I'm dying out here. I'm in the desert, right? I'm dying. I really need some water, God. I really need your grace, God. I really need your love, God. I'm hung up on that sin. I'm hung up on that addiction. My marriage is in trouble. My work is not going well. My situation is not getting any better, God. I need you to lean in. And all the while, he's leaning in. But yet, we're not taking it. Here's the picture. This is the essence of receiving something, right? Let's pretend that, that this represents um, addiction, uh, brokenness, whatever. Fill in the blank. You know what your thing is, whatever it is that you're struggling with. Doesn't have to be a sin. It can just be something you're struggling with and you're struggling, and you're striving, and you can't figure out what's going on. 
It says that God has leaned in and he's offering us grace. He's offering us his righteousness in exchange for our own. And the whole time we're holding on. And we're going, God, I need to be cleansed. God, I need to be set free. God, I'm hung up on whatever it is. I'm hung up on that addiction. I'm struggling with that thing, God. You know what he's saying? He's saying, hey, if you want to receive it, open your hand. Open your hand. You see, the nature of receiving something means that you have to be inclined to take it. You have to open your hand up. And sometimes I think that our hands are so full of other stuff that we can't actually open our hand to take grasp of the Lord. This is the beginning of a mind shift. You see what I'm saying? This is what belief is. This is the baseline of belief to go, you know what? I'm not a sinner saved by grace anymore. I'm saved by grace. (laughs) I'm not a broken screw up anymore. I'm a son and a daughter of the king. I'm not addicted anymore. I'm not chained to that sin. I don't have a broken relationship. In fact, just like Josh said earlier, I'm a great mom. I'm a great dad. But you go in your feelings, you say, well, I'm not a good mom. I'm not a good dad. I'm broken. My marriage is all screwed up. I'm addicted to this or that. Why? Because you feel that way. But if you really believe what scripture teaches, then when you said yes to Jesus, you exchanged all your junk for his perfection. And now he's just leaned in saying, come on, here I am. Here it is. Here it is. And we sit there and we go, Lord, I don't feel it. That's a tactic of the enemy, by the way. How many times, dude, I'm telling you, I used to do this all the time. How many times did I sit at my bedside when I struggled with pornography, as an example, I would sit in my bedside and I'd say, Lord, take this from me, God, take it from me. Lord, I don't know what to do. Take it from me, please take it from me. And the whole time, all I'm doing is holding this, going, take it, Lord, take it, take it, take it, Lord, take it. But I'm not letting it go. And in fact, sometimes I found myself running. And he's coming after me, saying, here it is. One day a light switch went off. And it was when when I began to understand that there was a mind shift that had to take place in my life. And the mind shift, the thought process that had to change was that he's already set me free. Now catch this, this is another church word. It's called repentance. Okay, we automatically connect repentance with this this idea of like confessing our sin. And don't get me wrong, that is part of it. Repentance is, you know, confessing your sin. Repentance means to turn from from your your uh from a, a, a different way of life. But here's the catch. Repentance, the essence of the word repent means simply to change your mind. To change your mind. Even to, to break it down a little bit easier, because this is when I think of the word repentance, this is what I think of from here on out. It's the word re, which means go back to, and the word pent, which is where we get the word penthouse. Come on, dollar bills, all right? Penthouse. If I want to go stay somewhere, I want to stay in the penthouse, right? Why? Because it's the top. It's the best, right? So here's the thought process. When we repent, 
We don't just confess our sin and just get it out in, out in, the, in the light or whatever. When we repent, we actually change our mind to believe what Paul said in this scripture, that we have been set free, that we can receive his grace and his righteousness, and literally re, we return to the high places. We return back to the high places. Where are the high places? Isaiah 50-something says, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not like ours. But in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, we have been given the mind of Christ, which means we have been given divine access to the thought patterns of God. And you know what? Just like Josh said a little bit ago, when we access the thought patterns of God, God never says you're a screw up, you're broken, you're messed up. He says, you're my son. You're my daughter. You are a prince and a princess. You are a a divine being that I loved so much that I sent my own self, my own flesh and blood to die so that you could have righteousness. You could have grace. And when we repent, we literally change our mindset to go, no, I'm not broken and screwed up anymore. I'm a son and I'm a daughter and I'm a, I'm a child of the king. And literally we lift up above our situation. We return to the high places where God designed us to be in the first place. We return to the high places. And all of a sudden our sin gets really small because we're looking at it with God's eyes. And all of a sudden our broken relationships get very easily fixed. Not that there's not a process, because there is. When relationships and people are involved, it takes time. But your mindset shifts. When I actually received not strived or worked, not did try to do a 12-step program, not try to like white knuckle clench myself out of it. But when I actually received, I said, Lord, pierce me with your grace. Pierce me with your righteousness. I repent. I'm returning to the high places where your thoughts are now my thoughts. When I repented in the fullness of my understanding of that, all of a sudden a light bulb went off and I said, no, I'm not addicted anymore. set free. Why? Not because I did anything, because he did everything. He did everything. And when we get that, things change. agrees with it. And so what we've got to do is embrace a new mindset. We have to allow the Father to infiltrate our belief system because here's the deal, guys. The essence of repentance is literally releasing broken thought patterns. That's what's been happening over and over and over again from sin, addiction, brokenness, catch this, legalism. 
the thought that maybe you actually do something to keep yourself in the kingdom. Maybe you receive grace to get into salvation, but now the enemy has tricked you into thinking that you got to work to keep up some kind of appearance so that God stays happy with you. No, he's happy with you because Jesus paid the price for you. And so repentance is literally saying, Lord, whatever broken thought patterns I have, I just release that. Give me a new way to think. And so just with, with five minutes left, just real quickly, I, I just want to tell you two things. As we understand this continual process of repentance, this isn't a one-time thing. This is a day-in and day-out mind shift. The enemy is slick. He likes to come in and, and get us to start working again, all right? We do this. But as we continue to walk in this continual process of repentance, this continual giving over day in and day out, I wanna share two verses with you on what this looks like. This practical bare bones, there's more to it, um, but this is just what we got time to share today. In Romans chapter six, verse 11, listen to this. It says, so you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider In the Greek, that's the word where we get our word logic from. It means to think through this thing. It means that your mind has to shift, not to I'm struggling, I'm struggling, I can't get over this addiction, I can't figure this relationship out, I can't get ahead, God's always against me, maybe I need to perform better or do something better. No, no, no. It's considering, it's believing, it's knowing in your mindset that you are dead to sin. That means sin no longer has a hold on you. But you say, Brent, I'm still stuck in it. No, you're not. Stuck is a mentality. Stuck is not reality. In the kingdom, you're not stuck. When God looks at you, you're not stuck. The enemy has sold you a false bill of sale to make you believe that you're stuck when in reality, you're not at all. So we have to literally shift our thinking. It's our God-given ability to unpack that thought, which results in a belief that we are dead to sin and alive to God. Mm. So hear this. What does it mean to be dead to sin? It's believing that all of your sin. And when I say all, I mean all of your sin. The past sin, the present sin, like what maybe you just did a few minutes ago or what you're thinking about doing right now and the sin that you're gonna do years from now, guess what? When Jesus died on the cross for you, every single sin was wiped clean, dead to sin and alive to God. Did you know, catch this, you can't grow in righteousness You can grow in your understanding of righteousness, but you can't grow in righteousness. Why? Because when you said yes to Jesus, you got the full, all of Jesus's righteousness. You're not righteous like 10% righteous or 30% righteous or maybe 80% if you're really good. No, you're 100% righteous all the time. Why? Not because of you, but because of Jesus Christ. So we literally have to believe that Jesus took the penalty for every sin. What about that sin I did 10 years ago? Forgotten, dead to sin, alive to God. 
literally that sin 10 years ago, when God looks back at your story, he sees Jesus, 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 perfection, holiness, righteousness, grace, love, mercy, Jesus. So we have to believe that. We have to believe that we are dead to sin. Every one of you in this room, if you're a follower of Jesus right now, right here, you are dead to sin. Whether you feel like it or not, you're dead to sin and you are alive to God. You just gotta receive that. Last verse, because these build on each other. A few verses down in 614, listen to this. It says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law, but under grace. You're not under the law anymore. You're not under a system of rules and obligations. You are not under the law. Jesus set you free to be under his grace. Sin will have no dominion. The word dominion is where we get our word Lord. That means sin doesn't lord over you. Sin is not your master anymore. Your master, your Lord is Jesus Christ. It's the father in heaven. And when you receive that, when you believe that in your mindset, when your mindset shifts, listen to this. It says, when, when we live with this mindset, the promise is that sin will not have dominion. It will not be your master. And that is a future tense statement in the future. So catch this. We have to believe, like verse 11 says, that we are dead to sin right now in order for sin to not have dominion over us in the future. Sin has no hold on you when you believe that you're set free. It has no hold. You have to believe this. This is what sets communities on fire. Because if we believe that somehow our performance is adding to this thing, then we're constantly going to be stuck in focusing on me, focusing on me. I'm broken. I messed up. No, you're free. But I sinned yesterday. He paid the price for that. Repentance means to go to the high places, go back to the thought patterns where you are free. Throw off that sin that easily entangles and keep running the race marked out for you because the Father paid the price for you to reign in life, to let life be under your reign. 